studying through the book of Nehemiah this summer, and one of the things I'm finding out is there's really kind of a double level, double layer to studying Nehemiah. On the one hand, it's primarily written to those who are leaders, if you will. There's more for leaders than there is anything else in this particular book. However, the secondary level is, as you study and look at it, there's, there's something for everybody, is there not? But it's interesting to me to notice that Nehemiah is a leader of God's people who goes from being a servant of God's people, or a servant of the king, rather, into becoming a leader of God's people and what God has called him to do in this particular book. So far, what we've had an opportunity to look at, he's the cupbearer of the king. That doesn't mean he just polishes the silverware. He tastes the food and the drink to make sure it's not poisoned, a risky business at best. And yet, those who are closest to the king, they get the king's ear in a very special way, and they become very close to the king himself. And there's an opportunity that's going to arise as he is here in Susa, in the Winter Palace, It's about 80 miles east of the Euphrates River. His brother has come and reported to him that Jerusalem lies in ruins. The walls are down still. The temple has not been completely repaired. The people are in a state of reproach with their enemies. And Nehemiah grieves over that. They had already sent people there years before, decades before. And things are still not where they should to be. He needs and he cares about what's going on. He's got a burden for all of that, and he does the most important thing you can do when there's a burden on your heart. He takes it to God. And the biggest obstacle between Nehemiah and fulfilling his need is going to be going in front of the king and asking for help and asking for permission. How do you do all of that? The text that Craig read for us has three things I want to focus on for a few minutes this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, what he did. It's really not all that complicated. If you notice, the text tells us it's the month of Nisan. It's April. You go back and look at the beginning of the book where we've been already. That was back in December. Four months have passed. He prayed four months, night and day. And you know what's so challenging about that? Nothing ever changed. Nothing changed for four months. And I think for you and me, we probably would have depleted our spiritual energies had we gone 24 straight hours praying. I don't know about you, but I notice how weak we are. I notice how weak I am when it comes to prayer. Not nearly putting in the time that we should put in there. The amazing thing about Nehemiah is he's got the faith and the spirituality to keep up that kind of prayer life. Not just for a week, not just for two weeks, not just for a month. For four months, he prays and he fasts. And the idea of the fasting is not a particular religious ceremony as we've talked about. It's the idea that he's so intense, he's so caught up in his prayer life, food is not the priority for him. His most important thing is understanding God's will. And he says something here that's very interesting. He said, up to this point, I had not been sad in the presence of the king. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but there are some folks who, they kind of let you know that they're sad. You can read it in their faces. That's not always bad. But there are some folks who 
It's almost like they enjoy letting you know they've got a burdened heart. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, Jesus would say the hypocrites love to pray and disfigure their faces. You know, they get them all caught up or rolled up there just... Boy, they really look like they're having a rough time of it. And he would go on down in verse 15 and tell them, you don't do that. You don't do that. But that's not the way Nehemiah is. When Nehemiah took something into God in prayer, that's where he left it. And then he went on about his life. He went back to his job and he did go back there sad. But sometimes it's hard to perform the tasks of life when your heart's burdened. And especially when you've got some deep spiritual concerns. It can be difficult not to show that. The scriptures teach that we're to be responsible. We're to respect authority. We're to be efficient servants. Those who are over us need to know that we are there doing their bidding. We are their servants. And spiritual burdens, this is going to sound kind of harsh, but it's not meant to be. Spiritual burdens are not to interfere with the way we behave. Whether it's on the job or any other place, the way we treat our families. You know, even if you're dealing with unbelievers, there's a way that we're to conduct ourselves and carry ourselves out. There's a responsibility we have as we we face our circumstances. And yet, there are exceptions. Because I noticed that after four months... I think Nehemiah came to the point where he just had a blue Monday, if you will. It's such a burden, he can't help but be sad in front of others. And doing that in front of the king is not really the best thing. And we're going to find out why in just a second. It's not a sickness physically, it's a matter of his heart. And so he says in verse 2, I was very much afraid. I'm always amazed at how the Bible emphasizes things he didn't say i was afraid i was very much afraid and if you've ever been very much afraid you got an idea of what that's like and it's not always a uh, a pleasant thing to have to deal with for one thing when you're in the presence of the persian kings at that point in time they thought that was the greatest blessing you could ever have in your life to be in their presence isn't that something you know, have you ever had somebody tell you, boy, I'm glad you got to see me today? They meant it. And I mean, they took it to the nth degree on that. As a matter of fact, when you read in Esther chapter 4, Mordecai wants Esther to go before the king. And she replies and says, you know, even as the king, as the queen rather, you don't just do that. You go into his presence, and if he's not pleased with you, you can die. If he's not pleased with your presence that you make. So Nehemiah is serving the king, and the queen is there. And it's his job to serve and to make the king happy, and he's, a sad, and he's sad. Well, there's another thing that's added to this as to why he's very much afraid. When you read Ezra chapter 4, Cyrus had sent the exiles back to Jerusalem. They'd been back for about 90 years. They were being oppressed by the Samaritans, the, the half-Jew, half-Arab you know, those people that lived over in there. And they do this for three consecutive Persian kings. It's brutal. And two letters were written. When you read in Ezra chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, the first one, and it's a letter written to Nehemiah's boss, King Artaxerxes. And the letter comes back to him, 
and says, you know, these people that you're trying to help out and what they're trying to do, uh, they're really just trying to rebel against you. Once they get this all built up, they're lying. Uh, the Samaritans were lying through their teeth. But they built it up real good. And they sent this letter back saying, this isn't going to work. During the Persian Empire, there was a, a statement that was called the Law of the Medes and the Persians. And we use it sometimes in our society. And what it means is, you know, once that's been stated, that's the way it is. There's no changing it. Uh, it's equivalent to the idea that it's carved in granite. There's no changing it. The law of the Medes and the Persians. So when the, the king laid down that law, that's the way it was going to be. And the Persians were not known for changing their minds. And here is Nehemiah now, based upon what Esther has said, based upon the experience of Ezra chapter 4, and he's very much afraid. And the king sees it. What's wrong? What's the problem? It's a time for very careful tact in how he's going to approach this. And yet, it's a time when you trust your God you've been praying to. And you do what needs to be done. For four months, he's been asking God, open a door. And all of a sudden, the king asks, why are you sad? The door has been opened. And he says in verse 3, in essence, no disrespect to you, but. And he makes a statement and lays it out in front of the king. And if you notice in verse 4, the king finally asks him, what is it that you want? And if you notice the latter part of verse 4, he says, so I prayed. You ever been in the middle of, a, of an answered prayer and observed? That's an answered prayer. What you might want to try doing is immediately pray again. That's kind of the situation Nehemiah's got. The king asks, what's wrong? The door's been opened. Prayer's been answered. So he prays to God for a little bit more strength to get him through this. And as he prays then, I'm not sure what all was said. I'm not sure how he did that. Prayers don't have to be long things. They just have to go straight to God from a heart that's right with God. So he's been praying for this situation. He's been praying for months, and here it is. So I want you to know, secondly, what he asked for. When you look at verses 5 and 6 of Nehemiah 2, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, so that the city of my father's tomb, or to the city of the, my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. He asked for permission. That's the first thing that you notice. Artaxerxes has just changed his mind, and I wonder what that was like at the court of the Persians. They're not known for changing their minds. The queen is sitting there, and I think there are a lot of those folks in the court that are sitting there with their jaws open. The king just changed his mind. He just doesn't do that. It's an overwhelming thing. Yanni not only did it, he did it for this Jewish cupbearer. It's amazing that the king has just changed his mind. But Nehemiah is ready. And you know what's impressive? He's been praying for four months, but I think he's also been preparing for four months. When the, not if the door's open, when the door's open, when God answers his prayers. Here's his next step, and here's what he's going to do. So Nehemiah was ready for that. And the king asks him how long he wants to go. And the Bible says right here, I gave him a definite time. Now, what we're not told here, what you have to see later on in Nehemiah is, the time period is 12 years. 
What is it that you want? I need to be gone. How long do you need to be gone? For 12 years. When was the last time somebody asked you for permission to be gone for 12 years? I need to be gone for 12 years. If I don't get anything else out of that, it does tell me that a spiritual person can be a practical person. You pray, but you prepare. The second thing he asks for is in verse 7. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. He asked for protection. Now, here's the interesting thing when you balance that. He's been praying for four months. He's a man of prayer. You know that. Now he's asking for letters of protection to get me through. Wait a minute. You're a man of God. Why don't you just trust your God to get you through all of that? He's a Jew, and I know that sounds just really astute, but he is. And they're not very popular, especially at that point in time. And as he goes through, he's going to travel some 800 miles. He's going to be stopped occasionally and asked, Where are you going, Jew? I have letters from the king that permit me to go on through. He saves time. It's efficient. No hassle. And it's going to take him all the way through to where he needs to be. So it's not a show of a lack of faith. As a matter of fact, you'll read in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul will have letters he takes with him after he's converted, still for the purpose of expediency, when he's taking money, when he's got travelers going with him, going from areas of Asia Minor all the way back to Jerusalem so that everything is done properly. It's not a lack of faith. The third thing I want you to notice in verse 8 and 9, he asks for provision. He's going to basically ask for timber. And he noticed, and well, I want you to read it with me. He said in a letter to Asaph, the, the, the keeper of the king's forest, That he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, watch this, because the good hand of my God was on me. That's what I want you to see. He has his timber, he's got his permission, he's got his letters, but it's because the good hand of God's upon him. It's not just because he prayed for four months, it's not just because he's smart and did all of his preparation. It's not just you can say, well, he's a man of faith. It's the good hand of God that's on him. And he knows it's not about him, it's about God. Effective leadership requires more than just skill. It's knowing that you're doing what God wants you to do. It's knowing that you can see when God opens a door. Effective discipleship is not just saying, I know how to do this and I've studied this. It's trusting God to lead you and to guide you in doing that based on what he's revealed to you. And the third thing I want you to notice is what he found out. How does your faith work together with your planning? What do you find out in all of this? I think there are three things that you and I need to notice and pay attention to very closely. For one thing, it says that prayer is faith employed. Prayer is faith employed. There's a deliberate identification with God and his purposes and the most effective recourses. And the more you are involved in prayer for all of that, What do you do when somebody who watches over you, your boss 
or your parents or whoever else it is. What do you do and how do you handle that? You start off with the idea of prayer. Look over in Proverbs chapter 21 with me. We went to this a few weeks ago, but I want you to notice a couple of other verses with it. Beginning in verse 1, the wise man wrote and said, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord rather than sacrifice. When you put it into God's hands, God is the one who does the changing and the moving around and getting things accomplished with all of that. If you had asked Nehemiah, he would have said, I take my concerns to God in prayer and I leave it there. I leave it there. That's a hard thing sometimes for me to learn. That's a hard thing I've found for God's people to learn. You can go to God and you can ask God, but don't you sometimes feel like, I need to take things into my own hands and make it happen. There's a difference between preparation and just trying to do God's work for him. There's a point in which you trust him, and then there's a point in which you give yourself over to his will to do what's right. I've watched in marriages, I've watched in all kinds of relationships, people try to manipulate other people to get done what they want done, no matter how right it is. It's not up to me to change people's hearts. It's up to God to do that. Turn it over to God and let God work with that. It tells me, secondly, patience is faith evidenced. You know one of the hardest things biblical leaders have to learn is how to wait. Oh, but you know one of the hardest things God's people need to learn? How to wait. That's tough learning how to wait. And you're not going to find a good, strong Bible leader who didn't learn how to wait. When you look at Moses, he spends 80 years waiting. 40 of it in Egypt, 40 of it in wilderness. Waiting and waiting and waiting until God's ready. When you watch David, he waits 10 years before he's anointed king. When you watch Elijah, he waits three years by a little brook in Zarephath before he goes to Mount Carmel for that great conquest. When you watch Jesus himself, he waits 30 years working with wood before he finally ends up preaching and being recognized as the Messiah. God will use waiting as a means to teach us to abandon our homemade solutions and to totally release our concerns over to him. And sometimes the waiting can seem like it's unbearable. Four months, maybe four years but the waiting and God will wait. Listen to this. God will wait until there's no doubt about who's going to open the door. God, not me. And the third thing is that preparation is faith exercised. Faith is not a synonym for disorder or a substitute for careful planning. Faith is what you have in that relationship between you and God and you trust him and you give yourself over to him and you give everything else over to him and you let him work. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 7 says, We don't walk by sight, we walk by faith, do we? Are you really convinced of that? Are you really sure that's the way we need to do that? 
Here's Nehemiah. He prays for four months. He started through, I need letters. I need timber. I need access through this and through all of that. But yet I'm going to have to depend upon God to make that happen. It's not that God doesn't honor a person's wisdom. But he honors the one who needs to walk through the door when God says the door is open now. Can you see the open door? I watch people who are unemployed and needing a job. And we've got some in this church. And they say, I prayed to God. Have you seen the open door? Do you know when he's opened a door for you? I haven't found a job I'm qualified in. I didn't ask you that. Have you found the open door? Have you seen that? Sometimes it might be flipping burgers for a while. Maybe even a greeter at Walmart. Do you see the open door? Sometimes people struggle in their marriages. You know, we just don't love each other anymore. And God opens the door and says, what can you do about that? Well, I've done everything that I can. What can you do about it? There must be something else that you still haven't done. He opens the door and he expects you to go to him with a contrite heart and ask, will you lead me in something else I need to do to help here? In any situation, uh, how can I be more evangelistic here? You know what? How many people have you tried to talk to? You don't have to be a theologian. How many people have you just reached out to to try to help them? And even what you can't answer, do you know somebody who might be able to help them answer? What can you do with all of that? And on and on it goes. Proverbs 16 and verse 9 says, The mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Make sure it's God who's directing your steps as you go. Are you praying to God right now for any open doors in your life? I need a door open in this area with my family or at work dealing with my boss or in finding a job or with a career choice or, you know, what, who am I going to marry? Whatever it is, are you praying to God and asking about open doors? Will you see it? When he opens the door, ask God this week for three things. Ask him to increase your faith. If our faith grows, we're not going to have to be equipped or motivated by guilt. We won't have to be pushed or begged to participate in what he wants us to do. And just do it by faith. Ask God to give us more wisdom and discernment as we work and plan to do the things we need to do and what he's asked us to do. Ask God to bless our plans and help us not to exalt the plan and not to exalt us, but to exalt the God who blesses those open doors. Sometimes the problem is not that doors are closed in our relationships. Sometimes the problem is our vision is so poor you can't see the door when it's open. And God, because he's sovereign, will open doors of opportunity. He's going to open doors for you this week in your relationships. He's going to open doors for you to have an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. He's going to open doors to give you the opportunity so that you can grow a little bit more spiritually tomorrow, more than you have today. And throughout this week, whether or not you see them, God's going to be opening doors. Look for them. Please look for the open doors. Paul would pray in 1 Corinthians 16 and 9, or tell the church there, 
I want you to pray that God will open an effective door for service for me. It's kind of interesting. Jesus described himself as the door. An open door into fellowship and eternal life with God. Some of you need to walk through that open door. Some of you need to realize you've been coming to this church for a long time. You know what the truth is. You know what the doctrine is about what you need to do. It's a question of saying, will you go through the door? The door is open. And one thing I've learned the hard way the last few days, the door isn't always open. I don't know how many more days the door will be open for you. But I can say this, the door is open right now. And we'll help you come through it. And we'll help you enjoy life with Jesus Christ. And all you have to do, if you want to be baptized into Christ, if you want to commit your life the way it should be to Christ, you come while we stand and while we sing.